stay hungry, stay foolish. So now on the Innovation Show, it's a great honor to welcome Scott Galloway, founder and chairman of L2, professor with NYU Stern, previous board member with Urban Outfitters, Eddie Bauer, New York Times, Gateway Computers. Welcome to the show, Scott. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'd love to paint the picture of media in the light of the four horsemen that you talk about, particularly receptors versus intelligence. Sure. So if you look at in the US, the S&P 500, that's the 500 stocks that the S&P index tracks, only 13 of them have outperformed the S&P index each year for the last five years. So one that reflects our economy has definitely become a winner-take-all economy where the majority of the gains are, are being are being procured or captured by a smaller and smaller number of firms. But if you look at those 13 companies, somewhere between eight and 10 of them are really driven by algorithms. And that is whether it's Amazon or Netflix, there's primarily uh, behind the curtain, uh, a series of receptors that gather data, calculate the data, and then try and spit back an improved product. So we call it algorithmically driven. So what are the primary drivers of that algorithm? We would say that it's two things. It's receptors. It's the ability to gather information from a bunch of different users, uh, hopefully at scale, uh, real time. And then your ability to take that information and layer on intelligence, if you will, and that is intelligence learns, adapts, offers something better, learns, if you will. Netflix, every time you watch a program, Netflix has very basic intelligence, and then it says, all right, if you're watching season four, episode eight of House of Cards, we think that you might enjoy season four, episode nine, and it begins auto-playing episode nine right after you see the credits for eight. So that's basic intelligence, but nonetheless, it's powerful. Amazon has obviously uh, hundreds of millions of receptors in the form of their uh, interface with their uh, customers, tracking what you're buying. And it will customize your homepage to reflect the type of product categories that you have shown an interest in previously. They also have tremendous receptors being installed in people's homes with Amazon Echo that will record your voice preferences. It has crawlers that go out and look at what other sites are charging for products such that they can ensure they're always offering a similar or lower price. So this notion of putting out as many receptors as possible and then absorbing that information real time and then turning it around and making the product better. So another example might be Waze. The moment you turn on Waze, you've made the product better, that you've become a receptor using GPS and algorithms and artificial intelligence that are immediately able to update traffic patterns and recommendations to every driver based on your usage of it. The, the way to think of this, Aiden, is that imagine a car they got more valuable as you drove it more and put more mileage on it. These companies, if you will, are using algorithms to become sort of Benjamin buttons. And that is the more they're used, the better they become. Uh, that type of reverse perishability, if you will, seems to be common among all the companies that are outperforming the rest of the economy. So again, it's this algorithm of receptors, number of touch points where we can gather information, and then our ability to create that information or turn that information into intelligence and make the product better almost almost sort of organically or um, uh, automatically. And, and those, uh, those receptors then can transfer into revenue. I know Amazon's an easy one, but a lot of our audience won't understand the likes of Facebook. But laser targeting versus scattergun targeting at scale 
is where companies like Facebook can really, really win. Well, Facebook's power is that it's it's um, when you type in something into Google, uh, if, if someone were to list everything that you've typed uh, into Google with your name and your picture above it, it would be very uncomfortable. We've all typed in some crazy stuff into that search query box. So the private nature of the Google search box, if you will, is a bit of a disadvantage for them because consumers are not that comfortable with you taking individual receptor intelligence from your Google search queries and then tailoring ads. So if you said you had shingles and you were typing in symptoms and treatment of shingles and all of a sudden you were served shingle ads, it might make you uncomfortable that Google had registered that you had this ailment. You might not be comfortable with them knowing that. Whereas the open nature of Facebook, meaning that anything you put on Facebook, by virtue of the fact you're putting it on Facebook, is being expressed to a, a larger community set, means that people are probably more comfortable with Facebook taking that data on an individual level and then creating intelligence on it and serving you specific ads. So if you get a specific ad based on your behavior, what you've you've put on Facebook, people aren't quite as freaked out and people are okay with Facebook, if you will, doing micro-targeting at an individual level, whereas with Google, we want them to aggregate us into groups and then serve us based on that group. So Facebook has an inherent advantage over Google based on it's the explicit nature of the content we're giving them and our comfort as a result with their targeting. If, if we were to begin, start searching uh, about teenagers on Google and then they start serving us ads, for products for teenagers, we might find it uncomfortable that they had ascertained that. Whereas if we're talking about our teenagers and putting photos of our teenagers on Facebook, people seem to feel more comfortable as it's been a, an explicit or overt communication to a broader community, thereby making it uh, less private, if you will. So Facebook has got sort of this peanut butter and chocolate combination of massive scale, a billion and a half users, and the ability to target as specifically as households in a specific zip code that have teens that have recently received their driver's licenses. So it's it's got that targeting and scale combination, the likes of which we really haven't seen before in media. Yeah, and I, lo I love what you said there. It's best foot forward data that we're giving them. So it's data that we're totally comfortable with sharing. When you kind of look back, there was advantages there for a lot of companies before. So Apple, for example, and the information, the receptors they had in iTunes, for example, and Amazon with their review model, they had receptors in place, and they've almost let that slip, that initial advantage that they had. Yeah, so think of Apple. Apple, if you look at music, probably the company that does the best idea of this um, artificial intelligence or agility or whatever the term would be, this receptors times intelligence is Spotify. That when you follow someone and you update your playlist, the algorithms there begin updating your, the people who follow you, their playlist. It starts to figure out if you're listening specifically to a lot of, uh, of, of uh, a specific playlist, it looks at who that playlist is liked by and starts sharing lists and figuring out and making recommendations that are sort of more in tune or that you're more likely or more likely to be correct. So Spotify, probably more than any music company, does the best job of this. However, Apple is really the one that invented it by just simply stating which of their tracks on an album were being downloaded the most. And that popularity gave consumers an extraordinary amount of value because essentially what it gave you was the 15 or $20 or 90 or 95% of the value of a CD, which we were forced to pay 20 bucks for, uh, for two bucks. Because typically 90% of the value of an album is usually in one or two songs. And some people, some purists will say, no, it's the whole album. But the majority of us find that we'd rather just listen to a couple of the songs rather than have to buy the whole thing. 
and them them registering and then automatically updating what songs were being downloaded the most immediately added value to the end consumer. So they were really the first ones. Uh, and they've been blown by in terms of paid subscribers to Apple Music. They've been blown by by a host of people, whether it's Amazon Music or Spotify or even I think even Pandora may have more paid users now. But they they were first and they've they've let it slip away. Yeah, and you mentioned subscription there as well, because a lot of people in in media, for example, would see subscription as the great white hope that gives you data and that gives you implicit data on your user as well as explicit data. But you see subscription as lacking scale, and without that scale, it really can't compete with the likes of Facebook, Google, and, and the other horsemen. Well, so when you say subscription, subscription is a loaded word. So if it's signing up to get eight razors every week from Dollar Shave Club or Harry's, I would argue that that model doesn't pay off in the long run because it's actually not that intelligent and in that it's not, a, it's not adapting to your needs, your skin type, your usage. You sign up once and it, it records once one data set, what product you want and how often, and then that's it. Whereas subscription revenue models are absolutely the way to go. So charging $9.99 a month for Spotify, and then the intelligence, if you will, is updated real time, as opposed to just the initial purchase when you fill out the form for Glossy Box or Birch Box, which are subscription-based box programs. I don't think those work. So it's really, it's really all about how often are you absorbing data from the end user and then responding to it and updating and making the product better. So subscription business model is absolutely the way to go. A subscription service that only records or takes in data once at the very beginning and then assumes that is, that is the product you want to experience in the same cadence for the rest of your life, that, that's not what I'd call a, an intelligent product. And I think those, I think those, um, those services are short-lived. I, I think you're seeing it in the data. A lot of people that sign up for subscription services and the subscription service doesn't adapt or, or respond to their lifestyle changes, people end up with a bunch of stuff they don't want or not enough of it, and they end up canceling. There's huge churn in those programs. Yeah, and, and another thing you mentioned is the lack of that intelligence. So you, you talk about the four horsemen having this recycling of intelligence straight back into the product in real time, so the product gets better with every time you use it. Meanwhile, we see people kind of go, you know, Twitter's irrelevant now, or Twitter's not at the races anymore as well as the likes of Pinterest. And it's because of that lack of intelligence behind the product. So Twitter, there's some intelligence, but I would argue that, uh, and it might be in their advertising, that when I'm on Google and I type in a query, I have a lot of confidence that what I'm getting is automatically updated by everybody else's queries. And it sends me relevant information, and I think Google has more authority around pointing me to the correct information than any entity in the history of mankind. That, People trust Google more than they trust their priest, their father, their rabbi, their professor. One-fifth of all search queries, 20%, are questions that have never been asked before in the history of mankind. And it's hard to imagine anybody that has so much credibility that one out of five questions they received have never been asked before. So Google is really the original gangster here. and It constantly updates searches and, and moves up the sources of information based on what other people have found relevant. Twitter... It's hard for me immediately to understand how Twitter is taking advantage of the amount of information um, they're getting from other people. They do have some stuff, you know, what's trending. You get to see what's been retweeted, what's been liked. But for me, the product feels largely static over the last few years. It doesn't 
it doesn't feel as if based on what's happening, you're getting a ton of additional or incremental value. Now, that's not to say Twitter isn't an incredibly relevant product. My prediction on Twitter is that similar to a, a PBS or a Wikipedia, Twitter becomes part of our, a valuable part of our everyday life and our culture, but it's never able to really monetize or become commercially as viable as the other ones. I think it's, it's uh, fast becoming a hugely relevant part of our society that is, is, uh, is not worth as much as it is economically. I think they're going to have a tough time monetizing that relevance, if you will. And that's a nice uh, segue for, for traditional media because with the scale and use, and as you say, the recycling of data back into the product to improve it, so many traditional players, if they're the four horsemen, they're the stable boy actually changing the horse's dung and cleaning out the stable because they are just not at the races with the horses at all because they are, haven't even got data programs. They haven't even got personalization correct. And I know some, some of the newspapers, for example, are far ahead of others. But how do you see that panning out? Because you say about that Twitter becoming like a PBS, for example. Do you see that happening with a lot of media? Because it has a place in the world, but it doesn't have a monetization place. Yeah, cleaning dung, I like that. So, you know, newspapers and magazines are an example of they have decent reach, um, you know, millions of people, but not you know, usually hundreds of thousands, actually, not even millions. And the intelligence is pretty weak there. I, there's some that do a great job. The New York Times is, I think, one of the more innovative companies on online. Washington Agreed. Post does a good job. But they haven't figured out an elegant way to serve up or to make content better based on uh, readership. There are there is some stuff. I mean, a basic thing is articles read. You know, most read articles is a huge value add. That's what I when I'm on the New York Times homepage, I immediately look at the right and I see what's been read the most. That is that is a basic form of intelligence and receptors that adds a lot of value and makes the product better. And is an example of how the New York Times dot com is more valuable in some ways to the end consumer than the New York Times and its print. Edition. They haven't been able to take that usage, if you will, and immediately translate it into a value add for their advertisers. It's similar to the way that Facebook's been able to offer better targeting or Google's been able to run relevant um, uh, ads across the right rail based on what you're searching for. They just haven't been able to do that. I also think they made kind of one of the biggest mistakes in the history of business, allowing Google to crawl their data and slice it up and then serve it to the highest bidder. And that's not to say the New York Times shouldn't have been in the business of search, but I think the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal all should have bound together, turned off Google, and then licensed their content to the highest bidder and made the other content platforms sort of a sewer of cat picks and fake news. And instead, they let them come in, slice and dice their contents, put it next to other content, some of it credible, some of it not, thereby debasing their, their own content, similar to if Rolex were to start distributing through a low-end Army-Navy store, if you had Rolexes next to Casio watches, it debases the Rolex brand. I think these brands have such incredible artisanal, almost, journalism that they shouldn't be seen next to some of the stuff you find on Google and Facebook. In addition, they've let, essentially, they've traded kind of dollars for dimes, and that is the, the implicit agreement was, you give us your content, we'll send you traffic. Well, Google can take that content and run it against a search ad or a, a Google AdWord, which they can get 10 times the revenue that the Times gets for running a banner across an article that someone may go to. And you think, well, okay, fine, that, that's the agreement, but it shouldn't be the agreement. The bottom line is Google has the mechanism to, to, to monetize it, so the New York Times should be charging Google 
to crawl their content. And instead, they fell into this trap and this kind of BS notion that information wants to be free and started giving them their content. It'd be tantamount to, I'm trying to use a European reference, if the Premier League let you know, uh, Sky or whoever, or Canal, whoever the big cable networks over there, crawl their content and uh, show you know, Arsenal versus Tottenham and, and co- cut that concept up and then serve it however they want it. They don't let them do that. They charge them for the content, recognizing that content as value. For some reason, a lot of media, specifically print media companies, have decided their content doesn't have as much value and aren't charging these uh, platforms for access to their content. So I've been a big evangelist for all of the major media publications that have made an enormous investment in content, whether it's great journalism or foreign bureaus, should shut off Google, should shut off Facebook. They should all bind together and then license their content to the highest bidder. I think it's it's literally they stuck a gun in their mouth when they let Google crawl their content. Then they took the gun out of the mouth and shot themselves in the foot when they participated in Facebook instant articles. Facebook and Google are these guys' frenemy minus the friend part, and they need to shut them off. Yeah, and we see it in so many industries, Scott. It reminds me of what happened in telcos where you know you have a verizon or a telefonica doing a deal with apple in the early days to go yeah we've got exclusive for six months while we hand our whole our whole customer base over to you and you become the operator you have whatsapp you have your own apple communication direct messenger and it takes me out of the game and and all that's left is where the sim becomes software And, and in a way they've outsourced their audience to a third party and it's just a cycle we've seen time to time again and To your point about being the evangelist of bringing together all the media, they all need to do this because it's again happening, say, for radio, where you have TuneIn and these aggregators, and they're actually putting the Rolex beside, as you said, the cheap Casio watch and the direct audience relationships with the aggregator rather than with the brand. What can happen? Because the guys just don't seem to be coming together or seeing this and don't want to make the first move of joining together, joining forces. Well, there's some, they're worried about legal restrictions, they're worried about antitrust, and also there's, you know, everybody, there's sort of a cool kid effect. Everybody wants to be seen as getting it. So they all want to put out press releases saying they're working with Facebook and Google, that they're embracing the future, and their traffic would decline substantially. So these are companies that are built on sort of this eyeball model, where more eyeballs means more viewership means, and when your model is, your rate card is cost per thousand views. It's sort of anathema or heresy to do anything that cuts your traffic. But where I think these guys have screwed up is they pursued a mass model instead of a scarcity and premium pricing model. And I think similar to the way Hermes doesn't distribute Birkin bags to Walmart, they should be focused on scarcity and making their making their content rare and hard to find, and as a result, commanding a price premium around it. Now, you know, I've, I've pitched this to a bunch of them. They've all said no. Uh, I think if you know, I think. Some people acknowledge, well, maybe that, that the time to do that might have been 10 years ago, but now it's too late, that none of us have enough power to put a dent in people's affinity for Facebook or Google. But I don't, I don't think that's true. I think if they all got together and said, okay, we're going to license all of our content to either Facebook, Google, Twitter, you know, Alibaba, whatever it is, and one and one only, and we're going to do it on, I'd say, every three years, we're going to renew the contract to the highest bidder, similar to what FIFA does, or similar to what the Olympics does with TV networks. I think they'd get, I think they'd garner huge bids, because these, if there was only one platform where you could get content from Vogue, the New York Times, the Financial Times, 
and Der Spiegel, I think people slowly but surely would decide, would have a preference for the platform that is the only one that has access to that content. Uh, so I, I don't think it's too late. I think there's still an opportunity. I think they have to get together. I think they've all seen, you know, Ronald Reagan used to say if aliens landed Russia and the U.S. would figure out a way to get along. I think aliens have landed. And in retail, it's Amazon and media, it's Facebook and Google. Google. And these guys do need to start fighting back. And some of the way they're going to fight back is by creating alliances. But so should it have happened 10 years ago? Yeah, but I still don't think it's too late. Yeah, and even though the platform is actually on fire and, you know, there's been petrol poured on it every day, there doesn't seem to be an urgency from a lot of media outlets to do this. And and it's a plain, obvious play. And it, and it also probably get you around things like ad blocking if you actually join forces on that as well. What do you see as an impetus for the, these media companies to, to get their act together? Well, near-death experiences, I think, a burning <laughs> platform where they're, you know, they realize that, you know, they, they all like, you know, every one or two years, there's some sort of sign of life, whether it's digital or they, they have a year-on-year increase in their digital, their digital revenues increase more than their print declines. But year-on-year, what you're finding is these companies are just becoming a shadow themselves and that their business model, unless, you know, they, they have to acknowledge what has gotten them here today isn't going to get them where they need to be. And so they're going to have to rethink their business model. And the notion that digital would somehow, in its current form, would replace the loss in print revenues is just a delusion. And, and the way they're responding is by cutting costs and cutting journalists and cutting overhead. And there's only so much cutting that can go on before they have to figure out a way to grow revenues. And there's one place, there's only really, in my opinion, all, all paths lead to the same place. And that is unless they can figure out a way to tap in and extract advertising revenues from the bigger platforms, they're going to slowly but surely become shadows of themselves. The, the good and the average ones will go out of business and the great ones will just be smaller companies that eventually will be some vanity or trophy buy for a billionaire who has an affection uh, for, for the brand. And rather than, you know, yeah. effectively Republicans and alpha males buy billionaires by football teams and soccer teams and Democrats and, you know, the, the, the guys that were on the chess club and the guys that didn't play sports who become billionaires by newspapers. <laughs> and so we're, we're either going to, we're either going to have an environment where every, you know, newspaper company or kind of media company has to be purchased by a billionaire that made his or her money somewhere else, which I don't think is a good thing. I think that's, the, the, you know, a profit motive and profitable media companies are the healthier ones. They're going to have to figure out a way to tap into search and social revenue, and right yeah. now they they have not. And they're miles they're miles away from it. And another another question on that, Scott, is a lot of people kind of ask, should I set up? I'm thinking of starting a blog, or I'm still starting starting this magazine style website. M- my advice is always don't do it because their their only chance is really to be bought by a newspaper group. But the newspaper groups now don't have revenues to do that. That was maybe five years ago when newspapers or media outlets were grappling for some type of digital outlet or digital audience based on Facebook reach. What's your advice to somebody like that? So it's the same advice I would give to someone who's thinking about becoming a doctor. I think being a doctor, at least in the U.S., has become a, you know, a less, it's become a difficult job. It's a ton of education, a ton of debt you have to take on to pay for that education. And then it's a, it's a, it's a job that's not nearly as high paying as it used to be. But some people just have to be doctors, the ones that were taking your temperature when they were eight years old and they've always dream, dreamed of being a doctor. And for those people, it's not about economics, it's about pursuing their dream. There are some people that just, 
are dying to write and don't want to work through a traditional outlet and have a vision for something and put together a blog. And, you know, you're not going to stop those people. And, and, and having said that, just recognize that you better get a lot of emotional reward out of it because it is a terrible business. Every year, the prices, the CPMs or what you're able to get for advertising revenue on a blog get cut in half. The, the amount of scale you need to have a, a viable, self-sustaining blog is just enormous. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're talking tens of millions of, of views a month just to get to break even. So I would say it's a passion play. It's something that, you know, do it if you, if you want to try it, but do not quit your day job. This is a near impossible way to make a living. Retail, Scott, last question for you. We see so many retailers in a debt spiral and they're just spinning out of control and grasping at straws, dropping prices while, they're, while Amazon just goes from strength to strength with that reinvestment of customization and implicit and explicit input. What's your advice for retailers? So retail is tough and a lot of it, you know, some of it is Amazon, but a lot of it is just basic structural factors such as there's too much in the U.S. I think there's six or seven square feet of retail space for every one there is in Britain. So the U.S. is just overstored and with or without Amazon stores are going to struggle. A lot of people say department stores are dying in the hand of Amazon. But if you look at what's happened to department stores, every department has sort of been bested by a special retailer that offers a better offering. Beauty was sort of the last department to have a real stronghold in department stores in the US. And now you have Sephora and Ulta who do a better job than any of the beauty departments in any department store. So Amazon has gone after these guys, but there were there's sort of a perfect storm of bad things ready to hurt retail that were waiting regardless of Amazon. Uh, you have consumers shifting more money into things like food and travel, buying less stuff or, or reallocating that capital. You have a weak kind of low growth economy. So you have the mother of all, you know, uh, of storms waiting for retail. And then Amazon just, just adds insult to injury. There are some that are working. Traditionally, the ones, especially retailers that have, they have sort of an experience, if you will, and that is they're going for some sort of consumer discovery at an Urban Outfitters or to speak to an expert, whether it's at Home Depot or Best Buy or Sephora. So there are examples of, of retailers that are breaking through and still winning or offering just a superior value proposition. Warby Parker, $99 for glasses in an environment where you could easily spend five or 600 bucks by the time you walked out with the pair you wanted. So there are winners. However, there has been, there's just an absolute bloodbath over here. And I think it's starting to happen in Europe among retailers that don't have a really, you know, quote unquote, strong point of differentiation against Amazon or other players. Okay. So what advice do you have for retailers? I mean, A, it's from a technology standpoint, it has to be a multi-channel offering. People don't live in isolation of any one medium. You have to be able to offer proprietary merchandise or at a minimum a proprietary experience because at the end of the day, if I get it on Amazon, I'm probably going to order it there because I can get it fast and for less money. And you're going to have to uh, in my opinion, zig the other way as Amazon is trying to pull people out of the equation, invest in robots to make things faster and cheaper. I think you have to invest in human capital and have that those cast members at a Sephora, those blue shirts at a Best Buy, or those gold aprons at a Home Depot um, that make the in-store experience superior. I do think there's still a huge opportunity. You know, Care4 makes a pretty big investment in its personnel and retraining such that if you're looking for the right 
tomato. There's someone there who actually understands uh, produce. Uh, so I do think there's, you know, retail is, retail is not going away by any stretch of the imagination, but we have what you would call a reckoning right now where you could see somewhere between 10 and 30% of the retail brands that are out there right now aren't around in 10 years. Uh, it's just a difficult, difficult place to operate. Uh, it's been a long time coming. Amazon is just one factor. Amazon gets blamed for everything. Uh, what's unusual about Amazon right now is that when retail goes down as a composite, as an index of all their stocks go down, Amazon goes up. Because whereas most stocks in the same sector trade in sympathy or locks up with one another, Amazon is actually inversely correlated. People are now assuming that what's good for Amazon is bad for the rest of retail. The assumption is it's a zero-sum game, and that when Amazon's winning, other retailers are losing. So it's, it's an extraordinarily interesting time for retail, which means it's great for Amazon and bad for everybody else and a few other players that are breaking through. Uh, but like, there's no silver bullet. Retail is a difficult environment right now, similar to your advice to people thinking about the blog business. Don't go into retail unless you have no choice. Some people are born and they just have to be in it. But I would say it's a very difficult environment right now. Okay. And, and last question, Scott, because you've, you've touched on it there, was the human capital. So in a world shifting towards AI and screenless world where you have assistants like Alexa for Amazon, where do you see that playing out? Because it seems like Amazon, again, have a distinct advantage in that world. And maybe Apple, I'm not so sure about Siri, but maybe Apple. And that takes out stuff like, for example, there's a lot of commentators that would say that takes out advertising, so digital advertising, and it takes out Google's model if you have Alexa being the, being the, the search engine of choice, if you will. It's going to be very strange. I think, I think the two technologies, I'm always being uh, critical of technologies that being sort of overhyped. I think virtual reality is overhyped, Internet of Things is overhyped, wearables. The technologies, I think, that are quote-unquote underhyped are texting. I think the majority, a lot of our life and commerce is going to be done via texting. And then, so messaging. And then, two, I think voice is huge. And anyone who's in marketing or in retail should really get an Amazon Echo just to see, because you start to see the potential of it. And the strange thing about ordering, you, I, I have no doubt that people are going to start ordering replenishables and basics, and then they'll go to more sophisticated consumer purchases just using their voice uh, in their own home. What you start to think about, you know, in terms of how it would change the ecosystem is that when you go into a Tesco or a Walmart or a Kroger, you see packaging, you see a price, you see shelves placement, you see the other products around it. When you order something via voice, you oftentimes order by category. You might say more IPA beer or more paper towels. It's unlikely you're going to list a brand. So Amazon's now going to have the authority to kind of pick your brands for you, trade brands off against one another or substitute their own private label brand. You're also not seeing price. So you're going to probably end up with the voice that you think has such tremendous credibility to give you the right price because you're not going to be there to actually see and compare prices when you do it by voice. And the brand that has that credibility is is uh, Amazon. Walmart has it, but they don't have credibility around fulfillment or around technology right now. But you could see an enormous transfer in power from organizations that have brands that have been amazing at packaging, getting on the right, getting at eye level in terms of shelving placement, getting the right circular in front of you, making sure that they were priced competitively. Whereas if you just say more detergent, all the investment Procter & Gamble has made in the Tide brand and the packaging and the innovation, 
you know, it becomes it becomes less important when you're just ordering by voice and by category. So I think Amazon Echo has incredible potential to disrupt traditional purchase patterns. And that disruption will largely benefit Amazon. And it goes back to this receptors and intelligence. Amazon is putting receptors in our house such that all we need to do is say, Alexa, you know, a barbecue this week or more beer or send me, you can see it someday going, send me three quotes for auto insurance for my, uh, for my, you know, Mercedes C class 280 or whatever it is. You can see it getting so frictionless and so easy to buy things. And the majority of the purchases when we make are low consideration purchases that are seen as a nuisance. When you go buy a car, when you go buy a pair of Christian Louboutin shoes, those are joyful and fun and you want to be involved. But most purchases, we want less involvement and voice is almost frictionless. So I think voice is a long way, uh, Aiden, of saying I think voice could potentially reorganize the entire kind of consumer brand retail ecosystem. And if I were any retailer or if I were a kid coming out of uh, out of college right now, I'd want to be the guy or gal that really understands the technology, the applications of voice. I think voice could be, quote unquote, the next the next big wave. Brilliant, Scott. Well, listen, I really appreciate your time. Scott Galloway, founder and chairman of L2 and clinical professor of marketing at NYU Stern Business School. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Aidan. Best of luck. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, man. I appreciate it.